0: An economic downturn, corruption endorsed by the presidency, a carefree institutionalization of nepotism and democratic actions, insecurity, increasing cost of living, citizens are waning where lies the hope. John Domani Mahama speaks on Ghana at a crossroad
1: Live across radio, television, and online platforms on Monday, 2nd, May 2022, from 6 p.m. Listen, watch, and be inspired.
0: From across our beautiful country, Ghana, and from all over the world, I say thank you very much on behalf of His Excellency, John Dramani Mahama and Ramadan Mubarak to all our Muslim brothers and sisters who celebrated Eid today. I want to thank, especially, all the radio and TV stations and digital platforms that have plugged in and bringing us tonight's engagement with His Excellency John Dramani Mahama. Why are we here tonight? We are here, sadly, because our country is at a crossroads. A dangerous crossroads at which the managers of our country today do not know what they are about. Ladies and gentlemen, as President Mahama posted on his Facebook wall a few days ago, the present situation demands the leadership of the country to listen to the people and act appropriately. Listening and taking action is the surest way to success on our chosen journey of democracy. At this juncture, let me seize the opportunity to welcome Professor Nana Jane opoku immediate past running mate to our presidential candidate for 2020 elections. Good evening, ma'am, and you're welcome. Our national chairman, the Honorable Samuel Ufusampofo, is also here. Good evening, sir. Thank you very much for your time. The Honorable Johnson is here doing Ketia as our general secretary. He has also joined us this evening. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ghana at a Crossroad, a presentation by His Excellency John Dramani Mahama, former President of the Republic of Ghana and the immediate past presidential candidate of the National Democratic Congress. Also here are honourable members of Parliament, Chiefs, Nime, Name, you're all welcome. We also want to welcome our FEC members, our Council of Elders and all leading members of our party the National Democratic Congress. As Robert Frost mentioned in his celebrated poem, The Road Not Taken, he said, two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and sorry we cannot travel both. Indeed, we stand at an undeniable critical crossroads in our nation's history, where it has become necessary as citizens to choose a path that may well determine our future decades to come. To prepare the way for us, please join me to welcome Bishop Dick Esando of the Action Chapel Ministry for a short prayer. Thank you very much, sir.
2: Thank you, Your Excellency, with your permission, I will just stand on existing protocols. Uh, Shall we please stand for a word of prayer? Let us pray. O thou that inhabiteth eternity arise in your sanctuary and look favorably unto our nation Ghana we pray the Lord your glory shall fill this nation that your works O God shall be seen amongst men command the morning O God to manifest your works that we may continue to give praise and adoration and thank you for all that you have seen us through And what lies in our future tonight we commit this time into your hands we pray the lord as we gather to listen to this servant of the land touch his lips almighty god anoint his heart your word declares that the heart of the king is in your hand and you turn it whichever way it ought to go today we pray in the name of jesus the let counsel be upon him let his words resonate across the nations Bring wisdom, almighty God. Use him as as an instrument for solution. We pray for an open heaven that you pour out all that is necessary to give this nation the hope for the future to bring us to a place where dreams shall be fulfilled and your purposes shall be established. Now, O God, let your predetermined counsel and your will for this nation and this people be designed and established in our time. May all that we do in this time and beyond impact generations yet unborn. May men leave a good legacy, a legacy that will touch and advance the cause of this nation. Grant us grace that as we sit here today and all that listen through the various channels and the media will give attention, Almighty God, to that which will advance your cause and bring glory to this nation. We bless you and we thank you for all the instruments all the institutions and everyone whose heart is knit together to seek good and the peace and the prosperity of your people this we ask in the name of jesus the son of the living god let everybody say amen
0: thank you very much bishop dick esando is from the action chapel international that was a powerful prayer indeed the Bible also says in James five sixteen b the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. May our prayers tonight shake the foundations of our nation, and may the Lord hear our cry. Amen. Amen. Next, I want to invite to the podium my sister, the special aide to His Excellency John Dramani Mahama, Mrs. Joyce Muktari, to do us the honors in introducing the icon for tonight.
1: A very good evening, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, my sister Obobia. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, I come before you this evening to introduce to you, on behalf of His Excellency John Ramani Mahama, as he presents to us a paper on Ghana at the crossroads. Mr. Mahama was the fourth president of the fourth Republic of Ghana. Ghana, during his presidency, witnessed a massive infrastructure development in all sectors of the economy, including education, in health, in ports and harbors, aviation, rail, oil and gas, ICT, and many more. His vision and strategic investments in these areas solidly positioned the country for the next phase of development as a lower-middle-income country. Following the unexpected advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, he was humbled and gratified That the sum of his modest contributions, particularly in health, granted us great and crucial and timely interventions in helping rescue our dear country Ghana. Beyond investments in the socio-economic infrastructure, President Mahama also believes in investing in people, in his desire to ensure social justice and equity, and this was reflected in his promotion of girls' and women's interests at all levels. It was during the administration that Ghana attained gender parity in basic education. He also ensured the appointment of many women to high positions in his administration. In his last presidential bid, he selected an accomplished woman as his vice presidential candidate, the first time by a major political party in Ghana. And this evening we have in our midst this distinguished citizen of Ghana, Professor Nanajin Opukwajima. President Mahama is a man of many talents and accomplishments who committed himself to fulfilling the vision of transforming the lives of Ghanaians by focusing on jobs, stability and infrastructural development. My boss will tonight touch on the history of our democracy, the challenges we are all currently facing, and offer for consideration by the good people of this country of ours some key policy recommendations. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the affable, accomplished, development oriented, President John Dramani Mahama. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, and um, good evening. Comrades, ladies and gentlemen, and if Professor Mills were here, he would have said, my brothers and sisters, I thank you for making time to join me tonight, those who are here in person and the millions from across our beloved country and the world via the power of information and communication technology. Some of you may not know this, but I loved and studied history all the way to university level, and one of the books that absolutely enthralled me in my early years of studying history was a book titled, Makers of Civilization. Those of you who are my generation will remember this book. In that book, you will find many figures from the past, men and women, whose names have been written in letters of gold and who have been immortalized and remembered through the ages. Some of these celebrated historical icons were artists, physicians, engineers, philosophers, military figures, kings, pastors, who changed the world by boldly stepping out and challenging the status quo. Some of these celebrated historical icons broke the bounds in their various uh, nations and were bold to change things. In the spirit of May Day and the celebration of workers, I say, are equal to all of us for our continuous contribution to the success of this country and its development. Just like the past, there are many gallant workers of today whose stories would have regaled and inspired us if told. If there was ever any doubt, we know from our history that you are people who make our society and our nation what it is. We must join hands to ensure that restore our nation on the path to prosperity and opportunity for all our people. We've always sung the first stanza of our national anthem, which asks for God's blessing on our homeland, Ghana, and it enjoins us to resist oppressors' rule. Many have not taken the time to observe the second stanza of our national anthem, and the lyrics bear reflection. It says, hail to thy name, O Ghana. To thee we make our solemn vow, steadfast to build together, a nation strong in unity, with our gifts of mind and strength of arm, whether night or day, in mist or storm, in every need, whatever the call may be, to serve thee, Ghana, now and forevermore. This a calls for a nation strong in unity, and enjoys us with our gift of mind and strength of arm to serve our motherland Ghana now and forevermore. This is a call to service to our motherland, a call requiring that every one of us, regardless of background, religion, ethnicity, profession, political orientation, economic status, age or gender, must unite while offering the gifts of our mind and the strength of our arm. Sitting on the fence is not an option in nation-building. History will not remember us kindly if we accept the gradual degradation of our society and do not make any attempt to inspire ourselves to make a difference in our generation. Countrymen and women, Ghana, our dear nation, is at a crossroad, and we must tarry a while and reflect deeply on the road that we must take. The wrong choice would lead us down an easy path of chaos and destruction. The right choice would lead us up a path of prosperity and dignity, but go with hard work and sacrifice. My fellow Ghanaians, I can assure you that, as our forebears did in the past, if we come together united as one, there is no task that is insurmountable. The future is bright if we rebuff those who seek to divide us for their personal gain, and if we open the opportunities of our country to all our citizens, irrespective of ethnicity, political affiliation, age, or gender. Thirty years have passed since President John Rawlings, of blessed memory, appended his signature to the newly drafted constitution of 1992, which made an irrevocable commitment to a return to democratic and constitutional governance. In the period preceding that moment, which set in motion what has turned out to be the most stable and enduring period of governance in our history, we had plunged from the heights of being the Black Star of Africa, from the lofty ambitions of the post-independence era, to the depths of economic catastrophe, institutional decay, corruption, and despondency. Our life as a nation had been checkered with multiple governance experiments alternating between civilian and military administrations. The several starts and stops led to a situation where by the nineteen eighties our circumstances were indeed intractable. After a decade of stabilization by the then PNDC regime, which involved confronting and overcoming such problems as economic recession, hyperinflation prolonged droughts, devastating bushfires, shortage of basic commodities among other serious socio-economic problems, it became clear enough that the broad masses of the Ghanaian people yearned for a return to democratic governance. Thus, began the process to fulfill their genuine aspirations through a participatory and inclusive approach. The product of that process is the 1992 constitution. It ushered in the Fourth Republic and set us apart from our peers in the sub-region as having perhaps the most advanced democracy in West Africa and, I dare say, one of the very best in Africa. The Constitution itself was a remarkable piece of work that contained elaborate provisions which captured and guaranteed the fundamental human rights of all Ghanaians, including those of free speech and association. It had extensive provisions on media freedom and offered directive principles of state policy around which governance was to be conducted. The Constitution also laid down a governance framework which emphasized checks and balances with the creation of independent state institutions with clear mandates to work towards the consolidation of democratic governance and the protection of people's rights. And best of all, it was a Constitution drawn up by the mass of our people, including teachers, nurses fishermen, farmers, security personnel, butchers, traders, hairdressers, through the process of a consultative assembly. With democratic governors fully restored, we search forward together in the journey of nationhood with the hope and aspiration that the misfortunes of our past were well and truly behind us, and that the tentative steps we took then would ultimately deliver the progress we desired. Thirty years After these events I have narrated, our country, Ghana, stands as a crossroad. Since the first elections were held under the Fourth Republic some 30 years ago, there have been three changes in government. Each of these changes has been heralded by expectations of better governance, leading to tangible improvements in the socio-economic conditions of our people. The NPP government came into office in January 2017. On the back of mouth-watering promises of almost instant transformation of our country, amid countless slogans, President Akufu-Addo did promise to transform Ghana in 18 months. He voted for. Yes, he promised to turn around the fortunes of Ghana and create opportunities for all, and he charged all of us to be citizens and not spectators. A significant number of our citizens associated the promises with good and noble intentions in return, and despite our best efforts, the Ghanaian people offered the MPP a clear mandate in uh, 2017 to steer the affairs of our dear country. An assessment of our current conditions showed that what is happening now bears very little or no resemblance to what was promised. There is a sharp disparity between promise and practice. Today, most Ghanaians feel they were hoodwinked, and this is manifesting in their personal livelihoods and their daily struggles. Perhaps the most defining challenge of our time is making our economy work for everybody. Over the last several months, our political space and societal reaction has been dominated by discussions on the challenges with introducing even more taxes. These conversations have taken place against the backdrop of unparalleled cronyism, nepotism, and breaches of the basic tenets of conflict of interest, transparency, and accountable governance, and misplaced spending by the President and his inner circle. On top of this is the subjugation of independent constitutional bodies to the whims and caprices of the President and his cronies. The painful epiphany is that in Ghana today, the frustrations of Gandhian people is at an all-time high. We are well and truly at a crossroads, a crossroad that is acutely complicated by the doubt and fear experienced by our next generations, that they face a future that carries no expectations of success in their lives. For most Gandhians, the feeling of despondency and hopelessness is real and personal. It is exacerbated by a dangerous trend of growing inequality and lack of upward social and economic mobility, in addition to a calculated effort at constraining social justice. Interestingly, the condescending responses from government officials to public complaints have often accentuated the frustration and anger of the people. A government bereft of ideas has resorted to incarceration of critical voices, name-calling of citizens, and unfair categorization of the labor force, and huge numbers of unemployed youth as lazy and undeserving. Worst of all, government has been using chaotic shouts and in technical analysis laden with dubious comparisons and outward, outright enthrues to manage the narrative. Another worrying trend is the bastardization of independent constitutional bodies. Obfuscating their objectivity, and introducing deliberate constraints on their ability to act independently and in accordance with the mandate bestowed on them by the Constitution. This deliberate strategy has resulted in heavily politically colored and conflicted persons assuming positions within such institutions, alongside the swift dismissal of persons who have dared to act in an independent and fair manner. And here, one can mention the domelovos of our time. The cumulative effect of these travesties is an unparalleled and lack of substantive accountability in the management of our national affairs. On the economic front, Nana Akufuado and the MPP pledged to transform Ghana within 18 months, as I said, grow our economy at double digits, reduce borrowing, ensure fiscal discipline, bring down the cost of living, lower taxes, and protect the public purse. They promise also to move Ghana from taxation to production. In effect, none of these has been achieved. Instead, Ghanaians have been subjected to excruciating hardship and deprivation, resulting directly from the mismanagement of the economy by a government that lacks the humility to accept responsibility and the capacity to appropriately diagnose the root causes of the challenges that have brought us here. Rather, they constantly seek to impose on us their version of the economic reality, denying that food prices have gone up, insisting that the business climate is very favorable, violently protesting the evidence that their investments in meaningful capital expenditure is insignificant. And ignoring glaring evidence of unprecedented levels of corruption and breaches of internationally acclaimed standards of social justice. This government contests even the most basic and glaring set of facts. This should never have been the case for a government that has been fortunate to receive far more resources in the last five years than almost all governments before them under the Fourth Republic put together. Despite this fortune, Today, the Ghanaian economy ranks amongst the worst managed in the world. It is characterized by unsustainable public debt due to an unprecedented fiscal deficit, comparatively high and still rising inflation, a rapidly depreciating currency, spiraling costs of doing business, ever-rising cost of living, high levels of corruption, abuse of civil and human liberties and a general loss of investor confidence. Simply put, our country is on the verge of bankruptcy. In spite of the firm promise to reduce borrowing, this government has increased our public debt to almost 380 billion Ghana cities as of the end of the first quarter of 2022. This is more than three times the debt of all governments since the days of Osagyefo Dr. Kwame Nkrumah put together up to January 2017. A direct consequence of this astronomical borrowing is that our debt service obligations per annum has increased by 500 percent, from 10 billion Ghana CDs, which it was in 2016, to about 50 billion Ghana CDs now. We are at a great risk of defaulting on our debt repayments unless something drastic is done. To be clear, despite the heavy politicization of debt by the current administration while in opposition, the real problem we face is not just because of the daunting large size of the debt in terms of value. Rather, it is the stark reality that these huge levels of borrowing have not gone into infrastructure and capital investments but have been applied largely to consumption, and in some cases even misapplied. This heavy borrowing has not been met by commensurate and significant improvement in the size of our economy and its productivity to ease repayment of the debts in future. My brothers and sisters, an important and yet very disturbing variable often ignored in our national discourse about the debt situation, is the corresponding ballooning of government's indebtedness to local businesses and other statutory bodies, including SOEs. These issues must occupy an important space within national discourse, because our estimation is that government's liabilities to local businesses and other stakeholders exceed 30 billion Ghana cities. Rising directly from the excessive borrowing to fund consumption-related expenditure is the harsh truth that more than half of what government collects in taxes is used to serve its debt, with the remainder going almost exclusively into public sector wages and salaries. This has created self-inflicted rig- rigidities that leave very little space for investment in other important areas of the economy. The effect of this is that government is unable to meet its spending obligations in the most critical sectors of the economy, on which the livelihoods of millions of our people depend. It is little wonder, therefore, that out of a total annual collection of $2.1 under the National Health Insurance levy, as at end of 2021, only 127 million Ghana cities, which is about 6% of the amount, had been released to the authority. This is stifling the ability of healthcare providers in the private and public sector to provide adequate care for the mass of our people. My brothers and sisters, in the hands of a more responsible and prudent administration, the resources that have been available to this administration should have resulted in quantum leaps in the standard of living of Ghanaians, and we should have recorded major progress as a nation. After inheriting a stable economy that was programmed and poised for rapid growth from early 2017, this government has pondered its way into a ditch from which it has become impossible to emerge without imposing even deeper hardship and suffering on the Ghanaian the minimum expectation was that the MPP government would build on the strong foundation that had been bequeathed them and achieve incremental progress over what they met. They have instead carried out a demolition exercise of that foundation and left our economy in quicksand, sinking at an alarming rate. However, now we know that responsibility and prudence are not concepts that appear to be appreciated by this government. As we speak, the cash crunch arising out of the rigidities in the economy is having a devastating toll on almost all sectors of our national life. Let's take the education sector, for instance. At the basic level, capitation grants have been in arrears for nearly a year. Textbooks have not been supplied to basic school pupils for three straight years. At the SHS level, Lengthy delays in the release of funds have crippled the free SHS program, compelling key stakeholders like CHAS and NATS to issue ultimatums to government. There have been widespread reports of food shortages and nutrition deficient, deficient, poor quality food in schools across the country. And the academic calendar has become erratic due to non-availability of funds to run the schools. At the tertiary level, UTAG recently just ended a protracted strike action to call on government to honor its commitments on salary rationalization and better conditions of service. The UTAG strike severely undermined teaching and learning on our various campuses. College of Education students have spent more time at home than in school because of the lack of funds, and trainee allowances have been in arrears for several months amidst threats by school authorities to shift the cost of feeding onto students in the absence of timely release of funds by government. The government's mismanagement of the GET Fund has not helped matters in the education sector. Similar liquidity challenges permeate all sectors of the economy. Elsewhere, the District Assembly Common Fund still stands in arrears of several quarters, endangering our accumulated mileage in local government administration. LEAP beneficiaries who depend on a very meager quarterly stipend for survival have also in recent times been denied access to these payments for many months, condemning them to intense and perilous hardships. As I said, NHIS service providers are owed several months' arrears and are sparingly paid for their service. This is due to the illegal diversion or misapplication of attributable funds. Related to this is the reckless collateralization of various funds to satisfy current consumption needs. And worst of all, the government's expressed desire to collateralize more of such funds. They've collateralized the energy sector levy until 2035. They've collateralized almost 10 billion of GET fund revenue. Through the so-called seven-year Dachi bond. And after mortgaging all the family property, they are desirous of selling of the remaining fam- family cutlery, the small spoons and knives left, by collateralizing our mineral revenue through the dubious Ejapa deal. And it is suspected that they are in the process of collateralizing the revenues from the recently implemented e-levy. Countrymen and women, yesterday at the May Day address, the President stated that it is not possible to remove taxes of petroleum products because it will result in an inability to pay public sector and wages. He said that if these taxes were removed, there will be a shortfall of 4 billion in revenue collected, and as a result, they will not be able to pay wages. What he did not tell the workers was that some of those taxes cannot be removed because they have been collateralized and the money has already been spent. The Energy Sector Levy Act, when it was introduced by my administration, had a five-year lifespan to pay down legacy energy costs, energy debts. Today, ESLA cannot be removed as a part of our petroleum price buildup, because this government has spent the money up front and has collateralized it till 2035, as I told you. This entirely unwholesome practice of concealing debts through the collateralization of statutory funds for the contraction of loans must be curtailed, because hidden debts have never helped anyone, let alone a nation. Hidden debts will catch up with you as it has the effect of increasing the public debt while creating a false sense of security because those debts ostensibly sit on the books of state-owned enterprises or special purpose vehicles. For example. Whereas the Bank of Ghana, in its latest summary of economic and financial data, pegged our public debt at 351.8 billion Ghana cities, and therefore stated that we had a debt-to-GDP ratio of 80.1 percent at the end of 2021. The actual debt stood at 362 billion Ghana cities. When you factor in into the equation, debts sitting in the name of GetFund, Esla, and Sinohydro. They deliberately left this out to give a lower uh, picture, and this is what this government has been doing since they came into office. Thankfully, the strong will of the people, civil society, and the NDC legislators applied the brakes to the Ajapa deal. We must be determined to defeat the Ajapa deal if they resurrect it. This can only be the action of an Bonnie and not an Ejapa. <laughs> this grim economic situation has inevitably caught the attention of the global investor community and rating agencies, leading to a total loss of confidence in our economy. Due to this loss of confidence, Confirmed by our worst-ever downgrades from reputable rating agencies, such as Fitch and Moody's, we have been shut out of the international bond market since October last year and are set to remain shut out for the whole of 2022, unless the economic outlook improves significantly. The resulting panic reaction from the grim economic reality, the mixed and conflicting messages and outright on troops and truths from government actors has led To significant capital flight by businesses and international actors within our domestic bond market, and has complicated confidence in an already precarious banking sector that suffered the misfortune of the politically motivated collapse of some of our local, locally owned banks and financial institutions. It is estimated that about 200 billion US dollars in capital flight occurred in January 2022 alone. And the central bank lost about 687.6 million US dollars in net international reserves between November and December 2021. This also accounts for the steep depreciation of the city since the beginning of this year. Based on this trend and the absence of a credible and innovative plan to stem its fall, some financial institutions and analysts have projected that the city will end 2022 at 8. Ghana cities or above to the dollar, and almost 10 Ghana cities or above to the pound sterling, with fuel prices likely to exceed the 10 Ghana city mark. Another devastating consequence of the massive fall of the city is that it will cause a significant increase in our public debt, even without further borrowing. This also means that debt servicing will increase beyond the budgeted amount and worsen the rigidities that exists in the 2022 budget. Moreover, inflation has risen from 8% in March in March 2021 to 15.7% in February 2022 and currently to 19.4% in March 2022, the highest ever in 13 years since 2009. There is a genuine concern that inflation could rise even further when the pass-through effect of fuel price increases, among others, starts to take hold. This coupled with taxes are fast eroding the disposable incomes of Ghanian households and has made life simply unbearable for the majority of Ghanaians. Compounding the economic hardships is the ever-looming danger posed by the youth bulge, the unemployment crisis. Data from the Ghana Statistical Service indicates that our nation is not only experiencing a rise in inflation, but also an all-time high unemployment rate of 13.4 percent. This means millions of young people are wasting away their most productive years in abject disillusionment as the Akufado-Baumia government continues to pay lift service to the tragic unemployment menace. Unemployment is leading to social deviance, with a significant uptick in armed robbery, kidnapping, fraud, scamming, and ritual murders. Millions of Ghanaian youth with higher education are trapped in the situation of a permanent purgatory, with no clear indication that they can obtain gainful employment until before they turn 60 years of age and have have to retire from unemployment. No, it's true, you might not be employed until you are 60, and 60, 60 is the constitutional retiring age, so you retire unemployed. Millions of Ghanaian youth, okay, I've said that, yet the President continues to fritter away the taxpayers' precious money on luxurious chartered jets and other wasteful engagements. The resort to ad-hoc measures has failed to address the problem. Once again, it bears saying that Ghana is at a crossroads, and this current administration has no credible solution at hand. We propose a number of initiatives that are still very much the solution Ghana should implement to help tackle the problem of unemployment. The 1 million age apart jobs program, the big push for investments in infrastructure for jobs, the free TVETs combined with the National Apprenticeship Program as contained in our 2020 manifesto, I repeat that this government can draw on them for implementation because we can create an average of 250,000 jobs every year for the young people of Ghana if we make Ghana a 24 hour economy, three shifts of eight hours a day. We must. The NDC will always support the private sector in various forms to enable them to grow and expand their earnings and job openings. A stimulus package like that, like what we provided to the pharmaceutical manufacturing companies in the past, must be rolled out to other processing and manufacturing organizations. Our vision behind the establishment of the Ghana Exim Bank and the Ghana Infrastructure Investment Fund should not be lost. In times of anguish and deep national crisis, as we are presently witnessing, a convincing and credible response is required from leadership. The constitutional order we chose for ourselves three decades ago has the immutable principle of accountability as one of the most enduring pillars. Accountability requires those who have the privilege to lead to periodically render an account of their stewardship. Since 1993, every President of Ghana, including myself, have delivered the message on the State of the Nation to Parliament. It is, hugely, it is hugely important for our democracy, which the framers of our Constitution envisaged, as the occasion on which the President delivers to the people the governed a truthful, principled, and transparent appraisal of the State of the Nation, its achievements, and the challenges it faces. This year's rendition of the Address took an added significance given the obvious economic distress and widespread hardship that now pervades our nation. A a few weeks ago, President Akufuado performed this constitutional duty, and in view of the challenging economic circumstances that now face the citizenry, especially the poor and vulnerable, we all look forward to an address in which a truthful, objective, and transparent appraisal of the national situation will be presented to the nation. The occasion offered scope and a unique opportunity for the President to address in concrete terms the most pressing concerns of our people in these times and rally the nation for the purpose of extricating our vehicle of state from the ditch into which he has led us. We had hoped that the widespread hardship and suffering that Ghanaians are experiencing in these difficult times will be duly acknowledged, and responsibility will be taken for the arrogant missteps, wrong policy choices, and mismanagement that are mainly responsible for our current situation. Instead, and rather unfortunately, we are fed with the same litany of backpassing, denial, denial, nonchalance that the people of Ghana have been served by this President and his administration over the last five years. Nothing is ever their fault. Nothing is ever their fault. Energy crisis, Mahama. Economic difficulties, Mahama. Everything, Mahama. The president's spirited efforts to paint a rosy picture amid national anguish and despair was most disconcerting and give the clearest indication yet that the President and his government have fallen prey to the phenomenon of gaslighting. You can check gaslighting in your dictionaries. It's a form of (laughs) dementia. It is apparent that those to whom we have entrusted the leadership of this country are yet to grasp the stark reality of our national situation. As was manifest in his State of the Nation address, President Akupa and his head of the economic management team have sought to shake and deflect responsibility for the economic mismanagement that has led to this hardship and national economic meltdown. In the specific case of the head of the economic management team, who loquaciously posted as the gold standard for economic management while in opposition, we have continued to note his present flight from all economic discourse, even as after the economy tipped into a tailspin. The issue of debt, taxation, and depreciation of the currency, which rolled off his tongue in his overzealous and misplaced narratives against the SW NDC administration, have become taboo words for him. Until an avalanche of public criticism and demands forced him out of his hole a few weeks ago to make a pitiful torrent of unconvincing excuses for the disastrous mismanagement of our economy. The list of excuses offered by this government for the economic mess keeps growing by the day. When it has been convenient, COVID-19 has been made the shipping point and has been blamed for all our woes. Recently, the Russian-Ukraine war has also featured prominently. Russia and Ukraine's war has also featured prominently on the list of excuses, as have the so-called financial sector cleanup and supposed excess capacity payments in the energy sector. My brothers and sisters, none of these claims are acceptable. The fact reveals that while no one can run away from its impact on the global economy, the COVID-19 pandemic paved the way for the Government of Ghana to receive an unprecedented windfall that previous governments could only dream about. Over 30 billion cities, sufficient to plug the revenue shortfall of 12 billion Ghana cities anticipated for 2020, was made available to this government from various sources. The funding sources range from our development partners to internal buffers like the Stabilization Fund, which we set up in our administration. Another generous donors. Namely, there was a one billion USD US dollar facility from the IMF. Uh, Two hundred million US dollars was drawn from the stabilization fund. Four hundred and thirty million, it's estimated that it was more than that US dollars was received from the World Bank. Another four hundred million US dollars out of the one billion US dollar Special Drawing Rights, which was provided to Bank of Ghana, was taken by the government, over another $100 million from African Development Bank and bilateral partners, and 20 billion Ghana cities from the Bank of Ghana. Being a pandemic, COVID-19 affected almost every country on Earth, including our West African neighbors, with whom we share similar economic characteristics Yet these neighboring countries such as Côte d'Ivoire, Togo, Benin, Guinea, Nigeria, Liberia, Senegal, and Sierra Leone have emerged from this pandemic comparatively unscathed and with relatively stronger fundamentals as compared to ours. Ghana has incurred and recorded astronomical double-digit budget deficits and huge public debts than our West African peers. Long before COVID, it was evident that the economy was being mismanaged and was heading for a crash. I cautioned against this mismanagement several times. By 2019, our deficit and debt figures had already reached the stress levels. This is a fact which was recently corroborated by the World Bank through its country representative in Ghana. Unprofessionally, the real figures were always grossly understated under the guise of appendices, memoranda below-the-line items in our budget. It is this creative accounting and cooking the books, deliberately done in a bid to conceal the true extent of our economic problems, that has eventually caught up with this administration. Instead of making judicious use of the resources obtained because of COVID to cushion Ghanaians against the disease and spending strategically to stimulate people-centered economic recovery, The Akufo addo administration saw this windfall as an avenue for wasteful expenditure and a conduit for unmerited electoral success. The people of Ghana demand an independent forensic audit into how the COVID 19 money was spent. The Russian-Ukraine conflict cannot possibly be responsible for the suffering we are going through. The suffering Ghanaians are going to predate the war. Before this conflict, our currency had already been depreciating and was impacting negatively on fuel and commodity prices in our markets. Fuel prices have gone up on more than 40 different occasions since 2017, long before Russia and Ukraine started fighting. The about $25 billion which the government claims to have spent on the financial sector cleanup was a conscious policy decision made without due regard to superior alternatives like bailing out those banks with far less money, recovering assets and holding the people responsible for their mismanagement to rigorous accounts through due process. It was the NDC government that conducted the asset quality review, which determined that the banks in question were in distress. We then proceeded to pass appropriate enabling legislation to give the force of law to the actions that were deemed necessary to address the situation. These laws include the Banking and Specialized Deposit-Taking Institutions Act, Act 930, and the Ghana Deposit Protection Act 931. Our objective has always been to avoid the collapse of these banks, to preserve and strengthen Ghanaian presence and participation in our financial sector which we viewed as a strategic economic objective to protect depositors' investments and protect the jobs of tens of thousands of employees of these currently collapsed banks. The total cost of our bailout plan was estimated at a maximum of 9 billion CDS. This was going to be recovered in due course when the banks returned to sound management and profitability. But the outcome of the 2016 elections hampered our ability to fully implement this plan. The logical expectation was that this current administration will continue from where we left off, but they chose to go for the nuclear option. They collapsed indigenous Ghanaian banks, some of which had been built from the hard work of our compatriots our citizens and from scratch and had existed for decades and, strangely, at a cost of 25 billion cities. Doubts, however, remain about the accuracy of the figure given that the Bank of Ghana reports only 16 billion in its summary of economic and financial data. But a government that decides to spend a colossal 25 billion Ghana cities on a 9 billion Ghana city problem and actively seeks political applause for the same cannot turn around and pass it off as a reason for the current economic crisis we face. They also claim that 17 billion was spent on excess capacity payments in the energy sector, and that has contributed to the economic crisis we are going through. This is clearly untrue. To mislead Ghanaians into accepting this dubious narrative, this government has deliberately peddled on truths about our power generation capacity and its evolution. They claim that the NDC government added power generation capacity that we did not need. They said Mahama added too much power. (laughs) And that we did not need and that due to take-or-pay clauses in the power contracts, they have been forced to pay $1 billion to independent power producers every year since 2017. The truth is that in the NDC's 2012 manifesto, which formed the basis for our election and mandate to govern from 2013 to 2017, we made a clear promise to ramp up our power generation capacity, which at the time hovered around 2,500 megawatts to 5,000 megawatts by 2016. We were determined to meet demand, which was growing exponentially, and to resolve the recurring power deficit that led to crippling power rationing under all governments since the Fourth Republic began in 1993. We followed through with this promise and expanded generation capacity with the completion of the Car Power and Ameri plants. We also commenced work on SEM Power, AXA, Amandi, and the Early Power plants, EPP. By 2020, these plants These plants had taken our generation capacity above the 5,000 megawatts in line with our objectives. As we speak, available data show that our installed power generation capacity is 5.367 megawatts. Out of this, only a little above 3,861 megawatts is actually available and can be relied on. Countrymen and women, as an illustration, On March 18th this year, 2022, our peak demand climbed to 3,469 megawatts, which means that of the available capacity of 3861 megawatts, we had a redundancy of only 392 megawatts. If any of the plants had shut down that day, Ghana would have gone into a power crisis. The 392 megawatts falls far short of the 18 percent excess margin in capacity. That is about 695 megawatts, which the Energy Commission recommends Ghana should have to keep the system running safely in order that we do not regress into uh, darkness. In plain terms, this means that now we do not have sufficient power to meet peak demand if the current growth continues as it is this in turn means that we stand the real risk of suffering crippling power rationing if any of the major plants currently working develops a fault what therefore is the basis for the often repeated claim of excess capacity for which we are told 1 billion is paid to ipps annually exactly where is that excess capacity considering the facts i've just detailed to you put to strict proof under parliamentary scrutiny the finance minister disclosed only last year that $937 million had been paid in total for excess capacity from 2017 to 2020. My brothers and sisters, it is the duty of leaders to acknowledge problems, take responsibility and move swiftly to address them, as I did when confronted with the power challenges in my time. I could also have conveniently blamed the age-old and the investment in the energy sector, but I was acutely aware that Ghanaians did not elect me to complain and pass blame on to others. And so I moved to fix it, and I fixed it. President Akufado and his head of the economic management team must imbibe this key leadership attribute of taking responsibility, especially in circumstances where overwhelming evidence shows that our present economic dire straits is a direct outcome of their poor economic policy choices and wasteful expenditure. Governments since the Fourth Republic have all invested in digital infrastructure in order to modernize our economy. In my time as president, we laid some of the most extensive kilometers of fiber optic cable in this country, and we further provided 4G LTE wireless broadband in order to bring all parts of our country into the new digital revolution. Through these investments, we have created the opportunity for Ghanaians to enjoy the ease of electronic transmission uh, transactions. Indeed, Ghanaians have taken to the ease of electronic transactions very well. Mobile money payments are used for remittances to parents in the villages, they are used in the markets and supermarkets to pay for groceries, they are used by market women and other traders to to, to replenish their stock, and they are used at filling stations to pay for fuel and services rendered. Internet and electronic banking has made it easier to move money from account to account without the use of checks or cash transfers. This is a positive development for our economy and represents the fastest means of shrinking the informal economy and bringing us all into the formal one. Unfortunately, in the face of this self-inflicted economic catastrophe, this government, against all sound advice, has decided to introduce the E-Levy, a regressive tax that heaps more suffering on Ghanaians. Recently, our President was asked in a BBC interview, why he was choosing to tax the incomes of Ghanaians in their electronic wallets that had already been taxed. The President's answer was that it is the newest and fastest growing sector of our economy that is not being taxed. (laughs) It is the newest and fastest growing sector of our economy that is not being taxed. Clearly, Either the President did not understand the question, <laughs> or he is clueless about the regressive nature of the e-levy. Let's take, for example, a worker gets paid in his electronic wallet. His pay as you earn tax has been deducted already. For every transfer or purchase above 100 CDC he makes, on his e-wallet, he has to pay an additional 1.5% multiple times any time he uses uh, his mobile money payment. It will now be tempting for such a person to draw cash from his e-wallet and make those payments for his groceries, his fuel, entertainment, utility bills, all with cash, because then he will avoid paying 1.5% on every payment he makes. The collection of the e-levy began yesterday. And like a slap in the face, it began on May Day, <laughs> when we are supposed to be celebrating workers, we are celebrating a new tax imposed on them. And already there is a litany of complaints about the implementation. I've heard complaints of transfers of under 100 cities being subject to tax contrary to the law. And I've heard others say that they sent 1,000 CDs and paid no additional tax. Clearly, the Ghana Revenue Authority and those responsible for this tax were not ready for its implementation. Government's desperation to tax Ghanaians to get this nation out of the hellhole it has dumped us will not succeed because Government's own budget proposals show that the E-Levy will not make any significant contribution in resolving our problems, but will exact an adverse toll on the people of Ghana. We in the NDC do not oppose taxation as a principle. We will not be pretentious and couch fanciful slogans to condemn the principle of taxation like the MPP did in the past. We are, however, implacably opposed to distortionary and burdensome taxes like the e 11 That only force Ghanaians to endure more suffering. <laughs> A new National Democratic Congress government, God willing, and with the votes of the sovereign people of Ghana in 2025, will repeal the E-Levy Act. Even as this government remains fixated with taxing their way out of economic mismanagement, the Akufado government has been wasteful. They failed to demonstrate prudence in public financial management. The people of Ghana cannot be called upon to pay more taxes only for the accruing money belonging to the people to be dubiously and wastefully shared amongst family and friends through various fraudulent procurement practices. The creature comforts of the President and his officials cannot be more paramount than the need to protect the public purse and make savings that can be invested in more useful ventures, ventures such as education, health, and social housing for Ghanaians. The 2020 Auditor General's report makes for grim reading within the context of waste and corruption in the use of public funds. The report reveals that a colossal amount of 12 billion Ghana cities was wasted or lost to corruption and other uh, forms of financial malpractices in 2020 alone. This is twice the amount expected from the unpopular e-level. It has also recently come to light that our state-owned enterprises made total losses of about 5.3 billion Ghana cities in 2020. Another report has revealed that up to 9 billion Ghana's CDs of losses was incurred by energy sector SOEs between 2018 and 2021. How can the taxpayer ever be called upon to pay more money when his money is going down the drain in this manner? Beyond the economic mismanagement, hardships, unemployment, and other forms of misrule exhibited by this Government are deeply worrying issues of high-handedness. Intolerance of criticism and outright abuse of the rights of citizens deemed to be critical of this administration. In the f- last few years, several notable critics of this government and social activists have been subjected to unjustified arrests and prosecutions, with some having already served custodial sentences. It is go- obvious that this government has become edgy and jittery due to the myriad of problems it has created which have so frustrated Ghanaians and incurred their righteous indignation. They have therefore developed a hypersensitivity to the mildest form of criticism and have evolved a strategy to suppress dissent by making dubious examples of some of the most prominent opposing voices in the media and political space to dissuade others from intensifying their criticism. I have already cautioned that the penchant for unjustified arrests, detentions, and prosecutions pose a great threat to the freedom of citizens as enshrined in the 1992 constitution and will mar our good standing as a serious democracy. Consequently, it comes as little surprise that the Ghana human rights rights record has come under such robust scrutiny and scathing indictment in the 2021 Country Report on Human Rights Practices released by the U.S. State Department. The analysis of human rights violations contained in the report constitutes a major setback to the effort to entrench freedom and rights as enshrined in our Constitution, whose 30th anniversary we just marked last week. For the first time under the Fourth Republic, eight Ghanaians were brutally gowned down during elections in 2020 by agents of the state and government, and yet no action has been taken against the perpetrators. It has been over a year since these killings took place, but the President has not taken the trouble to publicly indicate his revulsion at these killings or even sympathize with the bereaved families. He has refused to acknowledge these extrajudicial killings that made him president. He has also taken no clear action to hold the perpetrators to account. These killings were preceded by similar and provoked violent attacks on members of the opposition by militant groups operating under the aegis of this government during the Ayahuasca West Wogon by election and at other times. No government in our recent history has demonstrated a lack of democratic temperament in dealing with issues of dissent and public criticism than the one headed by Nana Akufado. Ghanaians have witnessed a government which, though was popularly elected in 2016, is behaving more like a military regime than a civilian one. The lack of accountability, arrogance of power, human rights violations, pursuit of selective justice, muzzling of the media and critical voices, targeted collapse of uh, opponents' businesses, closure of opposition radio stations, state capture, nepotism, politicization and deliberate undermining of the independence of state institutions, amongst others, Are all unfortunate characteristics of this administration. I believe I speak for the NDC and IMPs and Ghanaians when I say these acts will not break our collective and patriotic resolve to hold this government to account. It will not break our collective and patriotic resolve to hold this government to account, no matter how many times they come after us. Suppression of the opposition and critical voices have never kept any government in power beyond what the people of the country themselves can tolerate. It can no longer be hidden that this situation has significantly undermined public confidence and belief of international actors in the neutrality of many state institutions, especially including our judiciary. There's a prevailing perception of bias and partisanship, which has not been held by the litany of bizarre rulings given in recent times, some of which clearly defy comprehension, and perceived to be designed to further the interests of the executive. This threatens investor confidence and our efforts to project Ghana as a viable investment destination because investors expect to have unbiased uh, uh, justice delivery should they require litigation. Rather than sweeping this under the carpet, we should encourage frank debate over it with a view to building stronger institutions whose fidelity will be to the states and Ghanaians, and not political parties or appointing authorities. Our country Ghana is at a crossroads, and the need to institute important corrective measures cannot be overstated. There is no shortage of solutions to our problems. It is the indolence and avid affinity of this government for a cosmetic approach to governance that has brought us where we are today. Thus, we need far-reaching actions from the President and the economic management team to resolve these challenges. Despite these challenges, I remain confident that, in spite of the current gloom, we can turn things around and create a brighter future for ourselves. (laughs) Ghana's best days are still ahead, and some of the alternatives we propose are as follows. Those directly responsible for the economic crisis must bear responsibility, and it is inconceivable that the Minister of Finance remains at post having presided over the worst economic meltdown in Ghana's recent history. The President must, as a matter of urgency and without further delay, relieve the Minister of Finance of his position, and appoint someone who is focused on national rather than self-interest, and who has the requisite skill, experience, and knowledge of public financial management in his stead. The personal benefit that the current minister and his cronies derive from borrowing on our behalf through the commissions they take by their companies who serve as transaction advisors raises an unacceptable conflict of interest situation, which, which must end immediately. It goes without saying that the economic management team, that solid team, has failed And must be reconstituted immediately <laughs> with fresh ideas and perspectives. Having supervised the worst public debt buildup, the worst budget deficit, the worst debt to GDP ratio, the worst credit, uh, credit rating downgrades, and the worst performing currency in the world, the worst crisis of confidence in our economy, the highest fuel prices ever. Ever-rising inflation. <laughs> the West's ever-rising inflation, unprecedented hardships, etc., the current head of the economic management team has clearly fallen from his ivory tower as a self-styled economic messiah to a poster boy. <laughs> Has clearly falling from his ivory tower as a self-styled economic messiah to a poster boy for economic mismanagement <laughs> and his leadership of the economic management team is no longer tenable he has lost sight of course and effect relationship in the economic value chain and complains that our dire economic state is due to bad ratings from international agencies He rather blames the agencies for our economic situation rather than the fact that our dissipating economy resulted in those bad ratings. How does that assure Ghanaians his focus on the critical things that need to be addressed? The EMT has been bedeviled by their own ineptness over exuberance and excessive focus on linear thinking of a theoretical cause and effect relationship. Devoid of the practical influences of complex real-life nuances. In short, the economic management team has used a laboratory experimental approach, typically found in textbooks to de- typically found in textbooks, to run the extremely complex Ghanaian economy and analyze the impact of one variable at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, I have often said to people in most cases, when you are analyzing the Ghanaian economy and an obvious simple solution comes to mind, think, think and think again. The consequence of this lack of depth and experience complicated the problems of economic management with excessive yet costly experimentation that did not yield viable results. Alternatively, Alternatively, the President may want to consider appointing one of the many highly qualified Ghanaian public finance management experts to lead the economic management team the third one the president must as a matter of agency reshuffle his cabinet more than five years of an administration without a major cabinet reshuffle has calcified the management of the ministries, departments and agencies. These MDAs and SOEs have become fiefdoms in which untouchable ministers and heads of agencies are now monarchs of all they survey. Yet they lack the energy, the passion, and ideas to turn these moribund situations around within the MDAs. Fresh ideas are needed. Morale is at a low in these ministries and agencies. The seriousness of the economic meltdown must compel government to unveil a clear and workable course of action emanating from broad-based thinking and consultation, rather than its current state of denial and wrong causal attributes. Such broad consultation must lead to a post-COVID economic recovery plan, a program that will focus our energies on building an economy whose fruits of growth will benefit all Ghanaians and give everybody a fair chance at success. The participants of this broad-based consultation must reflect the demographic, social and economic status mix of our country. There must be a clear and measurable reduction in government expenditure, even though this is not an easy course of action, but it is a necessary one. Nonetheless, I will be the first to admit, after running an economy on 0% central bank financing in 2016, however, a crisis such as this requires drastic measures. I am of the view that an open and transparent discussion of the true situation with the citizenry will help achieve this objective. The President must lead the way in the demonstration of prudence and modesty in the use of public resources. He must put an end to the ostentation and opulence, and show sensitivity and respect for Ghanaians by using the presidential jets which we acquired with taxpayers' money, (laughs) and stop the rental of expensive chartered jets. Only then would he have led by the power of his example, to quote Bill Clinton. When enable Ghanaians make meaning of the sacrifices he is making to get us out of the doldrums, the extravagance must give way to frugal application of public resources. We cannot live beyond our means and expect not to fall into debt and financial ruin. Related to this, and that's the sixth one, government must drastically cut down and trim down its size, rationalise and bring to reasonable level the pay packages of CEOs of SOEs. And other senior public servants and heads of state organizations. The time has come to look at the practice of providing free utilities and allowances such as inconvenience allowance, entertainment allowance, and such other innovative allowances that are crafted just as income enhances. The practice of setting up amorphous and poorly structured public agencies to run one off ad-, ad hoc policies must also stop, and those already created must be merged with the more established and time-tested agencies already carrying out similar functions to curtail the needless duplication and waste, there must be a real effort to plug the loopholes that facilitate the unconscionable loss of public funds incurred through financial practices, as revealed by the Auditor-General's report. Government must limit borrowing significantly if we all agree that we are in an economic abyss submerged under the suffocating weight of unsustainably high levels of debt, and are at a risk of default. Then the wisest thing to do is to limit borrowing. Government must, as a matter of agency, issue a moratorium on all non-concessional borrowing to avoid an increase in our public debt. After the issuance of this moratorium, the dithering must stop, and very urgent action must be taken to confront the debt, pro- debt problem. The stark reality is that in our current situation, it is just not possible to be servicing our debt at the present levels and have any significant resources left over to meet critical expenditure obligations. It is obvious that this Government has no plan on how to handle the debt crisis. I note that Government refused to take advantage of the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, commonly called DSSI, and the common platform for debt treatment beyond DSSI. Because of the peculiar nature of Ghana's debt profile, where only about 20% is formed by multilateral and bilateral debts, the bulk of our debt is from the international credit market and other commercial lenders. With default triggers related to bilateral and multilateral reprieves, Government clearly has two options open. No, let me, the bulk of our debt is from the international credit market and other uh, uh, commercial borrowers with default triggers. It is easier related to bilateral and multilateral retrieves. Government, must, government clearly has two options open to it. The first would be to open a discussion with the multilateral finance partners and our creditors on a debt restructuring program which will ease our debt burden and create some fiscal space to allow expenditure in critical sectors of the economy that are currently starved of funds. Rationalizing and enforcing strict compliance of our tax laws in areas such as the extractive sector, including a pragmatic legislation of the tax exemptions regime, can help improve resource flows. For example, a simple insistence that mining companies relay their export revenues into Ghana as per the relevant laws, rather than keeping such funds offshore, as is the current case, can help exchange rate stability. We must achieve a national consensus on these alternatives and take take proactive steps as soon as possible. The longer we tarry, the worse the situation will get. While implementing these measures, government must adequately signal to the international finance providers a clear effort at meeting future obligations. Government must commit to using some of the windfalls that we earned from the recent rise in crude oil prices to revitalize the sinking fund that we left them in anticipation of future debt servicing. We estimate that the hikes in crude oil price will translate into an about $3 billion Ghana cities or about $550 million million windfall for government this year. Part of this money must go into the sinking fund to build buffers for repayment of the 2025 maturing bonds. We must also take immediate steps to restore credibility to the management of the economy. A contributing factor to the plummeting of investor confidence in our economy is the practice of underreporting and concealment of key economic indices like the budget deficit, public debt, and net international reserves. For instance, the Bank of Ghana must stop adding the proceeds of our heritage fund and other encumbered funds like Eurobond proceeds to our net international reserves to create a false sense that we have more buffers than we actually do. National data and economic indices should be a matter of fact and not subject to needless debate and contention. We cannot be debating the factual level of debt reserves, inflation, uh, 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 kilometers of roads constructed, whether they go from here to China, (laughs) the number of of schools and hospitals built, and whether CAPEX investments should include KVIPs, metric tonnage produced of food items. Ministers must not be contesting reports and data furnished to the public from their own outfits. And should not be comparing indices generated from rebase figures to figures prior to the rebasing. In effect, government data must be transparent and must give a true picture of, at all times of our national situation. In addition, government must clarify reports which arrive in the investment comu- community that it tends to use the heritage funds uh, held in the United States as collateral to raise a two billion loan from a consortium of banks. We wish to serve notice that if this turns out to be true, we in the NDC will oppose it vigorously in the same way that we oppose in the same way that we oppose previous deals. We cannot support the collateralization of every single source of future revenue just to finance today's consumption. This practice would deny future governments and future generations the opportunity to benefit from revenue streams accruing from funds which were originally intended to finance critical sectors of the economy. The Heritage Fund was set up purposely for the benefit of future generations, and cannot, who we cannot saddle with debt and no heritage, to make certain that this practice does not become the order of the day. I will propose the enhancement of legislation to stop the collateralization of statutory funds, because those funds are now being abused and their original purposes are being seriously hindered. It is obvious that the assumptions underlying the projections in the 2022 budget, especially regarding revenue, are overambitious and are unlikely to be achieved, considering all that has transpired since the presentation of the budget. Government must revert to more realistic targets and avoid creating further doubts in the minds of investors. Let me add that it is time to change the structure of our economy by allowing Ghanaians to achieve the popular General Achampo mantra of capturing the commanding heights of our economy. We must increase the GNP of our country as a share of our GDP. Otherwise, impressive GDP growth numbers are mostly the share of foreign investors, and subject to repatriation as well. We must leverage our comparative advantage in agriculture by investing in agribusiness to complete the agricultural value chain in respect of marketing and processing of our agricultural pro- pro- products. These are some of the interventions government must adopt in NS. This is not a time for political posturing and display of empty pride. We are staring down the cliff of economic collapse, and every day wasted. Winds down the clock further. Action needs to be taken now. And I'm almost done. My brothers and sisters, I think I've delivered a three hour State of the Nation address before. (laughs) So this is not too bad. We're just. Going to one and a half hours. My brothers and sisters, aside reversing the economic d- decay, I wish to emphasize the need to reweave our social fabric, which is bursting at the seams now. It threatens national cohesion and our democracy as well. The despair and disenchantment that the economic and social problems have created within our people cannot and should not be underestimated. There are many in our country today who question the relevance and usefulness of the democratic path we charted 30 years ago. They see too little progress or hope to convince them that democracy of the sort we are practicing is worth the effort. I am an unrepentant believer in democracy, and I hold that it is the only viable path to nation-building. Disruption of the constitutional order cannot be an option and would rather worsen a dire situation. But I am also pragmatic enough to realize that mere rhetoric and exhortations about democracy no longer give our people hope, particularly our young people who are desperately searching for jobs or the young families out there whose mortgage plans have been disrupted because the dollar has arrested the city. What threatens them must threaten us and jolt us into finding solutions. Of course, I know they also have a responsibility as citizens towards national development, but I also appreciate from my interactions with them that they do not expect government to solve all their problems. They are not unreasonable. Therefore, we as political leaders must demonstrate through our deeds that the struggle to restore democratic rule those three decades ago and the flame of hope that was lit in our people has not been in vain. We must restore their confidence in the democratic path. We can, if we carry out extensive reforms in our political and governance systems, and deliver the goods and services that they yearn for. This is the way to go, so that even in times of crisis, they still see a silver lining at the edge of the clouds, and can wait out the hard times, assured that effective and responsive leadership will work in their best interest. The political elite in Ghana are taking Ghanaians for granted and are governing and using resources in a manner that suggests personal benefit rather than national collective benefit. Under no circumstances must personal benefit override national benefit. The time has come to adopt bold and radical measures to carry our people along with us so we can wing back their trust and confidence to manage the affairs of the State with dedication and sacrifice. After 30 years of oppression, the young people of Ghana expect us to carry out a comprehensive review of our constitution and governance uh, system. They expect a strengthened fight against corruption and waste. They expect modesty and frugality on the part of our leaders. They expect humility and respect from those who lead us. In the meantime, this current administration must show commitment to building genuine consensus on the matters that concern Ghanaians the most, and rally their support around a common national cause. I'm ready to support this national goal with patriotic zeal. The The President must show leadership and take urgent steps at this crossroads to end the dangerous levels of inequality and polarization we see in this country. To do this, let him respect the rights of all citizens. And refrain from the intimidation of the media through hostility and needless arrest of critical voices. Let him end the politically motivated witch hands of leading opposition voices. For emphasis, President Akufo and his vice president must demonstrate a commitment to the fight against corruption by prosecuting his officials, many of whom have been accused of being engaged in corrupt acts, and disarm and stand down his militants that he has drafted into the security agencies. On the security front, this government must weed out the rogue elements it has drafted into the security agencies because they constitute a major threat to the safety of our country, including recent robbing of bullion vans at gunpoint. Let the Attorney General prosecute the killers of the eight innocent Ghanaians who were killed during the 2020 elections as well as the perpetrators of the Awasu West War on violence. Let the President be interested in his Attorney General, securing justice for Ahmed Swali, the journalist who was killed in cold blood for simply doing his work. And let justice be done in the case of Major Maxwell Mahama, a fine soldier who was lynched to death at Denshobwasi in 2017 while on a duty tour. These are some measures that can begin to set the tone for a genuine dialogue on building national cohesion and consensus, and bring an end to the dangerous levels of polarization and discontent that we see and feel around us. There is not a single example of any country in this world where repression of the opposition and dissenting voices or bad governors kept any party or leader in power forever. Eventually, change will come. Because there's only so much that an oppressed and overburdened people can take. President Akufo addo inherited a buoyant democracy with strong institutions that made it possible for him and his party to win the 2016 elections. And that happened without a fly being hit. Let him take those steps that will ensure that he leaves the country in one piece at the end of his tenure in 2025. At this moment, this government has lost its way and seems ill-suited to govern. As I said, Ghana is at a crossroads. The state of our nation is there and crisis-ridden, but in the last few weeks, happenings in the football arena have taught us what can happen if we change course and do the right thing. This lesson came in the shape of our gallant Black Stars, who secured qualification to the 2022 World Cup by defeating a much fancied and vaunted rival. Our Black Stars were dismissed, vilified, and disparaged after their poor showing at the 2021 AFCON in Cameroon, probably their worst performance ever. The management of the team effected badly needed changes, which provided a new sense of purpose and direction, the culmination of which was the qualification to the Qatar World Cup in 2022. Today, that qualification has provided a glimmer of hope on a very gloomy national horizon. Congratulations once again to the gallant Black Stars. My prayers and support will always be with you. The Black Stars' journey to Qatar 2022 provides useful lessons on which we can model responses to the socio-economic disaster that faces us today. If a team written up by pandits can reinvent itself, work together under the right leadership, and attain international glory, then the answers to our present woes are not far faced they are within us to achieve. <laughs> if we work hard at it together, under exemplary and selfless leadership, willing to make the right choices and the right calls, we will emerge out of this current crisis better and more united as a nation. My countrymen, failure is not an option. We have in our hand an opportunity to act and do so quickly at this crossroads to return hope and prosperity to Ghana, our motherland. May God bless you, and I thank you for your kind attention.
0: Can we do it again? Thank you very much. His Excellency, once again, you nailed it, and we are proud of you. It's always a delight to listen to you, and I'm sure that tonight is no exception. Ghana at a crossroad, our dear country is at the verge of bankruptcy. But for the ruling government, nothing is ever their fault. E was even implemented by John Mahama. Nalae. <laughs> anyway, we are grateful and thank you very much for your time. I'm sure that there's something that you're all taking home with you tonight. In 2025, when His Excellency John Dramani Mahama is sworn into office, we are. <laughs> we
1: are.
0: Exactly what we'll be doing as soon as we swear in the next government. Thank you very much to all the TV and radio stations that we were live on. We were live on TV XYZ, Joy News, Wazel TV, Pan-African TV, Angel TV, CTV, UTV, Loud Silence TV. Should I say it again?
2: time when I forgot to mention
0: loud silence, I'm sure you all saw the timelines. So let me say it again. Loud silence TV. <laughs> Home Based TV. We are live also on Radio Gold, your power station. You know they are back now. Class FM, Accra FM, Peace FM, Ahoto FM and all the 16 regions. We also have dozens of stations in each region that were ably arranged by our regional communications officers and their deputies. We thank all the stations and the digital platforms. We are grateful. What would we have done this evening without your help? John Mahama and the NDC are grateful to Wazo TV for producing this event. And it was proudly directed by Stan Dubwe and the team. Before we leave here, let me acknowledge some of our senior comrades, including our party's Council of Elders, our National Chairman, General Secretary, members of FEC, regional chairmen, members of our various regional executive committees, members of parliament, former appointees of the NDC administrations. Professor Kwe Sibuchu is a former minister for finance. He joined us this evening. Thank you very much, sir. We are grateful for your presence. Mr. Edward Annan is a senior member of our party. He also joined us this evening. Professor Joshua Alabi was our campaign manager for the 2020 campaign. Mrs. Betty Maudidrisu is a former Attorney General and a very senior member of our political party. Former Chief of Staff Prosper Barney is here. Thank you very much, sir, for your time. Ambassador Dan Abu Dhabi, member of our party's Council of Elders. He is also here with us. Professor Kwamena Ahoy. Thank you very much for your time, and um, Madam Faustina Nelson. Thank you, Mrs. Sati Okra. We are grateful for your time. And I'm sure that all protocols observed. Forgive me if I forgot your name. Let me acknowledge our chiefs and queen mothers in our presence. Osaberima and Ma the Third is Mamfihene and the Chidomhene of Equiapim Traditional Council. Thank you very much, Nana. We are grateful for your time. Nana Amma Upokuwa Ampowa is Nifahima of the Ra'ara Traditional area. Thank you, Nana. We are grateful. <laughs> Obasima Nana Amanya Akumbo is in of Rara. Thank you very much, Obasima. We are grateful for your time. The clergy was ably represented by Reverend Olivia Doce. She is also from the Action Table. Thank you, Mom. We are grateful for your time. And I'm sure that you heard our opening prayer. It was said by Bishop Dick Esando. Thank you for your time. We are very, very grateful. May we all now invite Sheikh Kamel Mohammed, Deputy Chief Imam al Sunnah for the closing prayer.
4: A'udhu <laughs> billahi rajim. اللهم آمنا في وطننا غانا اللهم آمنا في وطننا غانا اللهم آمنا في وطننا غانا برحمتك يا اللهم انا نسالك من جميع خير ما صالحك من عبدك نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من جميع الشر ما استعاذك منه عبدك نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم برحمتك الله ورحمة ربنا لا تضع كلبنا بعد ذلك وحبلنا ورحمة الله أنت الوهاب اللهم اجل اجتماعنا هذا اجتماعنا مرحوما وتفرقنا من بعده تفرقا معصوما ولا تلعفنا ولا مِنَّا ولا بيننا شكيا ولا محروما بِرَحْمَتِكَ الله ورحمة سبحان ربك ربي أم يسفون Ala Ameen.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Nana Jane Opoko Ajmai. We are grateful. And His Excellency, we are grateful. You always make our evening when we meet on a platform like this. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. My name is Obo Opoku, and I'm Deputy Communications Director for the NDC. Good evening.